Jonah chapter 2. Somebody drop their Bible. <laughs> it was my son. <laughs> it's okay. Been there, kid. All right. Jonah chapter 2. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would actually adore you taking that one home and calling it yours and getting started reading it. Uh, we believe, like thoroughly believe, that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all those really good important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Like, we, we actually want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be defined by, shaped by, evaluated through the lens of knowing Him. And if the Scriptures, His Word, or what He uses to do that in you, then it's like, it's just kind of smart to be reading them on a regular basis. And so, uh, if you don't have one, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. All right? So, Jonah chapter 2. Uh, we are a few weeks now uh, deep into uh, an effort uh, to walk through the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom about seven to 800-ish B.C. Uh, and so, I, if you're new to the Bible, I, why does that matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons, but the cheap reason is it's about seven or 800 years before Jesus walks onto the scene. All right? And so, there's some, there's some systems of thought. There's some ideas about who the Messiah would be. There's some ideas about who God's people are that are influencing uh, what we're talking about today. Um, and so Israel uh, has been broken into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jonah is a prophet, a man of God, who's, gi who's given words from God to speak on God's behalf. He is a prophet of God for that northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, you know, seven to eight centuries before Jesus shows up. Uh, and so it's playing out, the story is playing out in a, in a time period where God's people aren't exactly a good people, all right? Uh, there's, there's a lot of problems in the camp. There's a lot of sin in the camp. No one is, could be fairly called righteous. There's a lot of rampant sin going on. There's open idolatry everywhere. Uh, the king at the time is a guy named Jeroboam II. He is not a nice guy. Uh, the scriptures explicitly tell us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But despite the wickedness of everyone involved, and there's a lot of wickedness involved, despite the wickedness of everyone involved, God was merciful and kind to Israel. That's the moral of the story. That's what we need to, to get out of this. Under Jeroboam's reign, God allowed the borders of the kingdom to be expanded. It was a time of political peace. It was a kind of an economic boom for the nation. And so if you're just ignoring all the blatant sin and only evaluating things on secular terms, it was a pretty nice time to be living in the promised land. Things were going well, at least on the world stage. I think that teaches us a really important lesson about life. And maybe you've already discovered this for yourself, but people in every generation have this really nasty habit of ascribing earthly blessing that they see around them as some kind of tacit approval from God. But the biblical record continually proves to, to us that that's, that's not what's going on. We live in a world that, that, that looks at the things around us and go, well, God must be happy with me. He must be pleased with wh who I am and what I'm chasing after because of look at all this stuff, right? And over and over again in the Bible, we see a story of a God who blesses in spite of us. This is exactly where the northern kingdom of Israel is. They're being blessed in a time period in spite of themselves. In fact, we're told that God looks down upon them in pity. And so the historical tone that, we're, that we were given to kind of kind of correctly read through the story of Jonah was that Jonah and his people were the recipients of an astounding compassion, an abounding compassion from God long, 
Jonah was ever called to take that message of compassion to another place. Long before he was told to take that message of compassion to Nineveh. And that's important to point out continually as we remember and read through this story because when, when approaching this story, people often try to want to make a big deal over the wickedness that was uh, rising, we think, uh, in the, the nation of Assyria, the empire of Assyria during this time. And, and, and make no mistake about it, there's not, an, there's not a leg to stand on to try to argue that they were some kind of innocent people. The historical record kind of helps us to believe that they were pretty brutal. There's a lot that we can point to that says that the Assyrians were not so nice people. Um, in fact, the second verse of the book of Jonah tells us verbatim that they, their evil had come up in the sight of the Lord. But it's been my experience, most of those look how bad Nineveh was efforts usually flow out of somebody trying to want to vindicate Jonah's actions a little bit. And, you know, make it sort of understandable. Yeah, there's still, it's still wrong that Jonah would not want to, to go to the Ninevites. It's still wrong that he would not want to bring the message of repentance and reconciliation and grace to, to the Assyrians. But, like, we kind of get it, you know. I would struggle to take it to those wicked, evil people, too. Look how bad they are. But Jonah's story is not a story of a morally righteous prophet struggling to love the unrighteous. This is a story of someone who is actively being shown a ridiculous level of grace, refusing to turn around and extend that grace to other undeserving sinners. It's a key point to remember. What we have is a hypocrisy problem on our hands. The prophet of the Lord, he knows the sins of God's people. He's fully aware of the grace that is actively being shown to the Israelites, even as they walk willingly in their idolatry. So for those of you who already know the story, uh, Jonah explicitly tells God in chapter 4 that it's because of God's character and his pattern of graciousness uh, to the undeserving that he fled instead of being obedient. That's why Jonah is running away. The problem is that that fleeing... Well, it didn't get Jonah very far. Um, this is week four in our series, but back in weeks two and three, uh, we got to see the results of Jonah's attempt to run away. How'd it go? The answer is that it didn't work at all. God was already there waiting for him. Uh, Jonah tries to escape the presence of the Lord, and I don't know if you're, if you're you know, you never thought through it, but you can't ex escape the presence of the Lord. He's everywhere. <laughs> um, Jonah, in his attempt, trying to run away, um, trying to run away from God, run away from what God had commanded him to do, he heads down to the boat dock. He buys a ticket to sail across the Mediterranean. He wants to get as far away from God's call as possible. And so what does God do? God hurls, we're told, a windstorm upon the waters. Hardened sailors are freaked out by this storm. They're scared for their lives. They're chucking all their stuff overboard. They think they're going to die. Storm, to shorten the story a little bit, the storm finally leads Jonah to fess up and tell everyone that he's running away. And, and so these pagan sailors, trying to do what the angry God they think wants them to do, they hurl Jonah into the sea. And we're told that upon doing so, the storm ceased. The pagan sailors reacted 
uh, to that little revelation the same way that you and I would likely react to that little revelation. If you're in the boat, you chuck the dude over the side, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden the mighty storm stops. How are you going to respond in that moment? I mean, I, I think I'm going to be a little fearful of this God that made the wind stop, that made the waters calm down. We're told that the, the sailors began to worship the true God. They, they repent of their sin, they call out to the Lord, and they worship Him. It's a really cool story and all, but I thought with this story is about Jonah. What happened to him? Well, the very last verse of chapter 1 tells us that Jonah was sinking down to the bottom of the sea. God appointed a great fish to swallow him up and rescue him. Now, I know some of y'all are here this morning or maybe new to the Bible, new to the story. Uh, the fish account probably seems a little fantastical to you, maybe far-fetched. Uh, totally get that. Totally get it. Um, here's what you need to get. Uh, Christians don't believe that it's far-fetched at all. Like, like, we believe that God can do that if he wants to. And so um, we, we believe that God created and sustained literally everything, both inside and outside of the normal laws of nature. And so at the end of the day, if God wants to make a fish that can do this, he's allowed. He can. It's not a burden for him. It's not some kind of thing he's got to figure out. No, fish. It's done. Won't be a problem. He gets to make the rules. If you're interested, though, we spent more time talking through that stuff two weeks ago. Feel free to check out the sermon archives on your own time. But So Jonah has been swallowed by this fish. Uh, he, uh, we, we see a little bit of, uh, of the in-between time in chapter 2. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, we're told that uh, he is in the fish for three days and three nights, which is fun. We get, we get to know the end of the story kind of before we get the middle part. But in chapter 2, uh, we rewind just a little bit. And we get to see a little bit of the intermediate time. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you might have a little superscript if you've got a physical Bible there above chapter 2. It says Jonah's prayer. So we get to see something that Jonah prayed while he was in the fish. And so uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. You ready to do it? I think you're ready. All right. We're going to start. We're going to do it a little differently than we normally do. We're going to read through the first nine verses and then come back and talk about it more slowly. Okay. All right. So Jonah chapter 2 verse 1. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, in the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 5, the waters closed, uh, closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All right, so from the structure alone, we already can tell that something is different than the rest of the story, right? I mean, we're, we're still in a narrative, but we shifted from pure storytelling into, into something that sounds a whole lot more like a psalm, Right? And that's because it is a psalm. That's what Jonah gave us. 
In fact, Jonah actually pulls several lines out of what he says from the Psalms. Uh, direct quotes, there are paraphrases, there are allusions all over the place. Um, and so there's a poetry going on here that, any, uh, that anybody reading Jonah's prayer would have immediately picked up on and, and, and linked to some kind of deep moment or deep emotion in the history of God's people. It immediately calls their mind back to something more than just merely what Jonah is saying on the surface. In the same way that you and I might use a familiar line from a song or a poem to say something with more weight than a mere sentence ever could, Jonah's prayer points to the poetry of his people. And I just realized there's a lot of peas in that sentence. I'm surprised I got them all out. Now, if you're in the middle of a conversation and someone, you know, someone trying to make a decision about something and they're kind of spelling out their options, if you're in the middle of that conversation and then all of a sudden they, they drop the line, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, immediately you think of stuff, right? You don't just connect with them on an intellectual level, you're also connecting with them a little bit on the emotional level because you've, you've been in the middle of a choice like that. Some mental leaps are going to be made. No longer talking about descriptive things anymore. You're connecting a little bit on a, on a heart level. And by the way, you connect even more if both of you have actually read Robert Frost's poem and you know that what he's talking about there isn't what most people normally think it is. But you can do your homework on your own. Go read the poem. It's really good. He's not happy with his choice. So Jonah's prayer is both structured and it pulls lines directly from what we would call the Psalms of Thanksgiving. These explosive celebrations of what God has done for his people. Moments when there was a disaster. Moments when there was a heartache. Moments when there was some kind of oppression. And God swept in to save. Jonah calls on all of these deep moments for God's people and starts quoting them. He says, and, then, and then after God sweeps in to save, right, the appropriate response when you watch that happen is to, to do what? It's to praise the Savior. And that's what the Psalms of Thanksgiving are. All right? And that's exactly what Jonah does here. Notice that he's speaking in the past tense. As you look back through it again, I called, E.D., for you cast me, Passed over me, over and over again. The, the tense is past tense here. Now that he's been swallowed up by the fish, he's praising and thanking God for rescuing him out of the water. See, a lot of people, I think, grossly mis misread this prayer. Jonah, in this moment, is not begging God to get him out of the fish. Jonah is praising God for getting him out of the water. Now, the rescue is not finished yet. I believe that Jonah is confident that he will get out of the fish eventually. But he can speak as if it's already handled. So you ready to walk back through it more slowly and dig a little deeper? Go back to verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed 
over me. So Jonah retells the story, right? He's in the fish. He's recounting what, uh, how he got in the fish. He's, he's hurled into the waters by the formerly pagan sailors. But in verse 3, we see that he doesn't give those sailors the credit for tossing him in the water. Who does? Who gets the credit for putting Jonah in the ocean? God does. He says that God is the one who is responsible for him being cast into the deep. And I don't know if Jonah's unable to swim or not. I don't know what that looks like, but we're given the picture that he fought it for a little while. The floods surrounded me, he says. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So whatever is going on, Jonah seems to have flailed about on the surface for a moment. Fun little children's story, right? You ever been in a situation where the swimming wasn't going so well? Not exactly a calm moment, right? Your heart races. Your breathing gets all gaspy. Your movements are frantic. But Jonah eventually loses this battle and he sinks down into the sea. And as he sinks down, we're given this incredibly dense word picture that he descended into the belly of Sheol. That's poetic right there. Sheol has a range of definitions throughout the Old Testament. As you, as you read through it, we, we, see what, we see what seems to be kind of an evolution of thought concerning Israel's understanding of the soul and Israel's understanding of the afterlife. They, they kind of come into their own theology there. And so fully realized theologies of heaven and hell, they eventually emerge out of, uh, out of that thought as God continued to reveal more and more and more to his covenant people. And so Sheol seems to have been used to refer to several different different things at several different times, depending on what part of the chronology of, of Israel you happen to be in. And so sometimes, sometimes it very clearly is talking about the physical grave, literally a, the hole in the ground where you bury the body. All right. And so sometimes you, you'll see Sheol referred to by its nickname, the pit. That's what it's talking about. Eventually, though, Sheol became more of a resting place for souls of the dead, kind of a, kind of a final location for both the just and the unjust. And then there's some other places in the Old Testament where Sheol seems to be more of an intermediate state for the soul, kind of awaiting a future judgment of the Lord. So what are they thinking in Jonah's day? Which one is it? Well, we think that in Jonah's day, and based on the way Jonah is using it here, it's more likely that middle option. They see Sheol as a generic realm of the dead, the place where all dead people go, the final and forever resting place where people get what they deserve, death. So why does that matter? Well, because Jonah sees his condition as the final verdict on his disobedience. The final verdict on his disobedience. He is past the point of him being able to fix his problem. There's no longer an option for him to be obedient. The decision has been made. And so if anything is going to change, it will only come by a God being merciful to give Jonah what he does not deserve. His calling in helpless distress is actually pretty good theology. Right? See, Jonah understands that, that it's by God's hand alone that he descends into the depths, and it can only be by God's hand alone that he might ascend again to life. He can't fix this problem. It's in God's lap. And speaking in the past tense here, already in the belly of the great fish, Jonah understands how little he deserved that rescue. And so he professes the good character of God. God has already proven his faithfulness to him. 
And then look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. All right, Jonah knows that God reigns just as sovereignly over Sheol as he does over the land of the living, right? But he also understands that the greatest punishment for sin is to be driven from the loving presence of God. From the loving presence of the Lord. And so this, this is the punishment that was handed down to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? This is, later on in, in the book of Romans, this is what Paul tells us is the proper wages for sin, death. But God has already proven his trustworthiness. He's already proven his faithfulness. Jonah knows that what he's experiencing right now, it, it's unusual. Like, you think you might have questions about the fish? I promise you, Jonah has some questions about the fish. But even more than that, oh, even more than that, Jonah's got a living testimony of the saving work of God in his life. He can point to some things. He's alive right now, but it's not by his hand. It's not by his handiwork. It's God's. Jonah knows that he should have died on the bottom of the sea, but that did not happen. And he cried out to the Lord in distress and God in his goodness towards Jonah. Not because Jonah earned something, but in his goodness and in his mercy and in his grace toward Jonah answered him. But we're not done with the psalm yet. Jonah hits the repeat button here. You can't just have one stanza in your psalm of thanksgiving. You've got to come back to verse 2, right? And so Jonah runs the story again. He starts talking about sinking to the bottom in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 7, while my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What a scene, right? As Jonah loses his fight to stay on the surface, he gives us the picture here of the waters closing in over his head, angrily snuffing out his life. The Hebrew there uh, actually carries the idea of squeezing the life out of his throat. Good children's bedtime story, right? But that's not the scary part. He also says that the weeds wrapped about his head. Like anybody karate chopping after that one? Like, it's not just the water working against him. The plants on the bottom are playing a role. Sounds like a horror movie. It's an absolutely desperate moment. Absolutely desperate moment. Jonah is fighting for his life, and as he's losing his battle, as he sinks to the bottom, and sink he does, right? In verse 6, he tells us that he descended to the roots of the mountains. That's deep, poetically and literally. Descended to the roots of the mountains. One might even dare to call that rock bottom. Literally, rock bottom. And then Jonah brings back the imagery of Sheol again. Not by proper name this time, but by association. Not only do they call it the pit, but in Hebrew thought, Sheol was thought to be closed off from escape by impenetrable bars. It was a prison. Prison for the dead. So Jonah is already safe in the fish belly. 
He points to the moment where he is drowning and right on the threshold of death, and he says, yet. Yet you brought up my life. In verse 7, he describes remembering, or we could say calling out to the Lord, even as he's fainting away into death, and his prayer reached God in his holy temple. Now, it's not that God is separated from Jonah in this moment. There's, some, there's not some infinite physical gap between uh, Jonah and God. God is in the water with Jonah. But Jonah understands that there is a gulf of separation between his sinful condition and the infinite holiness of God. They're not on the same level there. He understands that when he throws up his desperate prayer on the verge of death, that the God he is praying to sits enthroned with all power and majesty and glory on his holy hill. In other words, Jonah might be desperate right now, but God isn't. Jonah is flailing around right now, but God is not frantic. He is sovereign, and he is in complete control of every moment of this. Jonah has hit rock bottom as thoroughly as anyone could possibly hit rock bottom, but the God he calls out to in desperation is not troubled by a single bit of it. Now one second. Not only is God already there at the bottom waiting on Jonah when Jonah finally sinks down, but the entire existence of the fish he's currently in supposes that God was preparing for this moment. Well in advance. Which is why Jonah says this in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So who's Jonah talking about? I mean, he was just thrown off the boat by some formerly pagan sailors, right? And so it's possible he's talking about them. It's possible. We, we learned that, that they repent and that they make a sacrifice to the Lord, but that happens after Jonah is tossed overboard. Um, and so it's likely much later, after the events of Jonah's story play out, that God filled Jonah in on that detail. He wasn't around to see them repent. He wasn't around to see them make sacrifices and vows to the Lord and worship the true God. So he could be talking about them, but as is often the case, the lives of God's prophets are usually an object lesson for his people. And so there's, there's an even better to re- reason to believe that Jonah is talking about Israel here. His countrymen are actively paying regard to vain idols. Yes, God is blessing them in spite of them, but they are actively running away from God. It almost sounds like Jonah comes by his disobedience pretty honestly, doesn't it? Just like him. The Hebrew word for steadfast there is the word hesed. It's a good Hebrew word. You've got to hawk a loogie in order to say it right. Hesed is frequently used in, in the Old Testament to, to describe God's covenant faithfulness to his, his people. And so God is holding up his end of the promise, and Israel forsakes. Opposite word, right? As Israel forsakes their end. Throughout Israel's idolatry, they are voluntarily laying down the hope of God's great love for them. Nah, I don't want it. I'd rather have this instead. 
and sitting in the belly of a fish, having just been rescued from certain death, Jonah can't seem to figure out why anybody would be dumb enough to walk away from God's steadfast love. What are they doing? I mean, look at what God has done for him. Like, look at what Jonah expects God to continue doing for him. How could you, how could you be so dense? It's ironic that Jonah finally got there in the fish, though. Look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You ever been in a situation where you told God that if he'll get you out of that situation, you'll do blank? Oh, you're not, apparently you're not the first one. Pattern as old as Genesis. Here's the deal, though. That's not what Jonah is doing here. Jonah is not bargaining. Jonah doesn't need to bargain. Jonah is confident in God's plan. In a moment of celebration, Jonah explodes with massive truths about God and and some promises of what he will do when God finally finishes the work that he has already started. So what is he going to do? He's going to worship in the temple. Seems like an appropriate thing to do. He'll offer sacrifices. He will fulfill his vow. Sounds noble even. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. That's why. What a lie. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You just want trumpets to sound on that one. In fact, there have been a number of really smart, Bible-loving people who have pointed to this verse, verse 9 here, and tried to argue that it is the greatest verse in the entire Bible. And they got a pretty solid argument in some ways. I mean, what a declaration of who God is, right? He is God. He alone can save. He deserves all of our thanksgivings. He is worthy of every single sacrifice. Following the vows, fulfilling the vows that you've made to him is the most wonderful and fulfilling thing that you could ever spend yourself doing. Absolutely salvation belongs to the Lord. I wish I could point those really smart Bible-loving people down, sit them down and politely ask them the question, what salvation is Jonah talking about here? And what vow has he supposedly made to God that he will now fulfill? Because as of yet in the story, he has made no vows. Jonah carries an incredible trust in the faithfulness and the provision of God. There are good things to point to here in his theology for sure. He rightly understands the good character of God, but we've also been hanging out with Jonah long enough to know that right theology is not the only necessary thing. While Jonah rightly understands God's goodness and while he rightly understands God's faithfulness, what do we not see from Jonah right now? We don't see repentance. There's not one single I'm sorry in this prayer. There's not one, I was wrong. There's no, God, I messed up. Would you please give me another chance anywhere in this incredibly wonderful psalm of thanksgiving? Church family, here's another truth that I, about our spiritual lives that I think we desperately need to learn this morning. 
It is entirely possible, entirely possible to make a complete mess of your life, to dig the hole as deeply as possible and then cry out to God to rescue. Is it entirely possible to rightly understand that you desperately need a rescue that can only ever come from the hand of God, to cry out to him and even rightly praise him when he rescues you from the mess that you made? Is it possible to do every single one of those things and still not repent? It's possible. Why? Because rock bottom is not what produces repentance. That's God's job. Only God can produce repentance. There's this weird assumption in our culture that seems to believe that someone finally hitting the low point in their lives will they're just naturally bound to come right back up, right? You know, as if, as if that hardship is just going to magically move someone from hating God and his commands to now loving him. But the entire Bible argues against that premise. Jonah does not cry out for repentance here. He cries out for salvation from drowning at the bottom of the sea, which are not the same thing. He cried out for mercy and Mercy that only God is capable of providing. He even remembered some really churchy lines that in that moment about how good and wonderful his God was. But that's not the same thing as contrition before the Lord. But God rescued him. Yeah, he did. But like we've seen over and over and over again now in this story, that rescue or that blessing or that good thing from God's hand, it is not because the recipient deserved that good thing. It is the abounding compassion of God that drives Jonah's rescue, not something in or coming out of Jonah. Hate to break it to you, but Jonah's not done being an idiot yet. So listen, church family. Neither is God done being faithful to those who have no business receiving his faithfulness. God's not done with Jonah yet. If you're here this morning and you don't know what the gospel is, hear it right now. The gospel is not now, nor has it ever been. I cleaned myself up or I finally positioned myself in such a way that God is now pleased with me. It's not what the gospel is. It's not Jonah's story. It's not the gospel story. The gospel is that the gospel of Jesus is that the God who owes you nothing except wrath for your sin chooses instead to pursue you in his great love. In spite of you. The gospel is that God came near. How? Jesus put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life and perfectly righteous life before the Father. He died sacrificially on a Roman cross to make payment for your sin debt. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that this morning. You can do it right now. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'd love to help talk you through what that response of repentance and faith looks like. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time set aside for helping people put action to whatever God is stirring 
in their heart to calling them to respond, and I'll be down front. What if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you are a follower of Jesus yet? What, if, if you're already a Christian, you've been playing this church game for a long time, how, 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 do, how do we respond to God's word? Well, we have one more verse to read. We're not done with chapter 2 yet. There's a verse 10. And I think that God's steadfast love, even in spite of our sometimes failure to repent, is the proper lens by which we can now read it. Okay? Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. So in case you're not familiar with the story, Jonah did not exit the fish in a pretty way. Nor a gentle way. The way you feel about vomit reading the story is the same way that Jonah's original audience would have felt about it when they came across it. Not a noble thing. Nothing's changed there. There's a proper disgust surrounding this moment. So, so why is Jonah vomited out rather than some other cleaner option? I, I think it's because God knows the difference between I'm sorry prayers and get me out of my mess prayers. Right? He's no less faithful. He got him out of the mess. He's going to finish the the rescue that he began at the bottom of the sea. God's not dangling salvation out on on a rope like a carrot in front of you, waiting for you to finally mean it before he'll give it to you. So let's not act like he's somehow fooled with our nonsense either. He knows. God saves Jonah from the mess that Jonah got himself into. That salvation that began the moment the fish swallowed him was finally fulfilled when the fish chucked him up. It looks like we get to use our word hurled again. Common imagery. Jonah's escape from certain death is not a pretty moment. In fact, there's good reason to believe that as he walks through town, finally going to Nineveh, that one of the reasons everybody listened was because he looked like he just came out of a fish. It seems, it seems like the escape God provided was also a moment intended to further humble Jonah. Next week, we will see God commission Jonah all over again. But for now, we need to see that Jonah hasn't gotten yet to where God wants him to be. That repentance is not there yet, but God is still, in his faithfulness, working him over. That's good news for me, because sometimes I need to be worked over. Sometimes I need to be humbled. And in God's goodness, in his boundless compassion towards Jonah, God is not done working him yet. He will though, get him there. He's good like that. So the question becomes, at what point in God's pursuit of us do we finally get smart enough to listen? Right? I'm quite happy that God doesn't use timeouts and fish bellies anymore. Um, Just don't want to sign up for that role. But he is still in the business of humbling his people before him. Through whatever means is necessary. I don't know about you, but I can point to some God-given humbling moments in my life. Moments where repentance and obedience early on would have been a lot smarter. Much better option. 
If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We, we lean in, right? We lean in to repentance and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I, I think we see that he is good and gracious pursuit of us. Man, sometimes it elevates itself beyond gentleness. And in that moment, it won't be because he's angry. It's not out of frustration. No, no, no. It's rather his determined love for us. It's a dogged refusal to let us run away from his better thing. He's good like that. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether it's uh, finally being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's to, to formally uh, join our church family, or, or, or maybe it's time for you to say yes to God's call in your heart to, to take the gospel to some faraway place. Whatever that call looks like, we're going to sing after I pray, and well, we'll give you a chance to respond. But whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a church family. Father, you're good. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Jonah and his story. And I got to admit, <laughs> sometimes I need to be humbled. I vote for anything other than the fish belly. But if that's what it takes to get me where you want me to be, maybe it's for my good. Father, would you help us Repent rather than just celebrate your goodness. Your goodness demands specific actions from us. And so where those actions don't line up with who you are and your character, would you call us to walk differently? But at the end of the day, no amount of rock bottom could ever stir those things in us. It will only be because you've changed our hearts. And so, Father, would you do that? Would you change our hearts now to, to love you and your commands more than our own safety and security and comfort? Father, for those here who don't know you yet, would you change hearts to know you? Introduce yourself to some people this morning. Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Expand your kingdom today, whether they're pagan sailors or Ninevites or somewhere in between. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.